Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ones Ready Podcast. We're happy you joined us today. We actually have a pretty interesting guest, and we, I don't, Aaron, I don't think we've actually had somebody from the Navy on yet. I know we've had Kirsties on. We've had Army. Harry Huyen is in the Navy. Are you aware that's of the right, seal? That's right. I'm sorry. Sorry, Harry. Man. <laughs> I'm going to, I can't wait to text him and tell him that you screwed that one up. This is a Trent level intro. Continue, hey, Peaches. I, this is I, good. I, I, admittedly, I wasn't on the one with Terry, but we oh, have okay, right. um, retired Command Master Chief Jody Fletcher on with us today. Appreciate you joining us, Jody. Yeah, happy to be here. Hey, uh, do us a favor just um, so that everybody doesn't have to go to Google and Wikipedia and stuff like that and uh, and find out how much of a big deal you actually are. Um, why don't you give us a little bit of background about uh, what you did while you were in the Navy? Well, I'm afraid to find out what you would actually <laughs> see if you got on Wikipedia or Google or the Urban Dictionary. I might have a few uh, entries there. Who knows? Yeah, don't look in there. Don't. Right. That place is a hellscape. Careful. I looked something up the other day, and even it, it even had me shaking my head. Um, yeah, so my name is Jody Fletcher, and I joined the Navy in 92 and was a special operations independent duty corpsman is what they're calling them now. It used to be FMF, Recon, IDC. might even still be that officially in the books. I don't know. But I did that for like the first 20, technically, I think the 23 or 24 years of my career. And then I went the command route and, you know, retired as a command master chief. Um, yeah, I, I was a, I'm a military brat. My dad was in the Navy. He was a corpsman with the Marines his entire career as well. And for those of you that don't know, you know, the Marine Corps is technically a part of the Navy, even though they don't always like to admit it. It's the <laughs> medical stuff is always provided by the Navy. And when you come in the Navy in the corpsman or medical field, you can go to schools and then kind of get earmarked and basically spend your entire career, which I did with the Marines. And, uh, you know, I was in the reconnaissance community. Was it uh, MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Command, when we stood up? And, yeah, I guess that's good enough of an intro, maybe. So so why, do, why does uh, the Marine Corps utilize the Navy primarily for their corpsmen? Well, because they're actually a department of the Navy. And whenever right, but they, I mean, so they just—it's not like we would. It's—it's uh, it's not like Space Force, if you will, would dip into the Air Force for a, a. Well, I guess they do dip in for a capability, but yeah, it's just interesting that they that they always have uh, used Navy corpsmen. Huh? Well, cool. and, and it's so funny because people are always—they'll see pictures or whatever, and they're like, "Oh, you're a Marine." I was like, "No, I'm in the Navy. I'm a sailor." So I was. I always joke and call myself a dirt sailor and all of us FMF, you know, sailors, because there are RPs, religious uh, program specialists, and there are a few people that do serve with the Marines. So I was just called us dirt sailors. So, But I mean, how, how unique is it for a sailor to be, to then become the MARSOC, you know, command master chief? I mean, you were, well, you were the command senior enlisted for MARSOC as a Navy, uh, as a Navy corpsman. So that's not unusual in the Marine Corps setting. Each general officer has a sergeant major and a command master chief when they get to that flag level. So we, I had a battle buddy the whole time, and that's super awesome because you're not just there by yourself. And, uh, you know, I worked for eight different general officers, and they were all amazing. But it's very cool to have that senior enlisted battle buddy as well that you can just kind of, you know, close the door and, and – uh, have a cup of coffee, so to speak. Yeah, those it's those <laughs> officers. Am I right? Like we feel that pain too. Sometimes you got to get away from from those O's, Jody. We, we know exactly what that means. So, hey man, um, you go to college, and I I don't know what happens in college, but it's something, right? Some sort of lobotomy. Yeah, that's that's your third semester. Is they forget? Uh, they they make you forget what it's like to be on the teams. Um, so let's go all the way back. I want to peel this bad boy all the way back to it sounds like more than more than 27 years of service. You were in for, for how long? So you went command route at 23 years. How long did you actually stay in? 29. I was 29 just over 29 years. years. Yeah. That is, that is unreal. So going all the way back to the beginning. So your dad was a Navy corpsman and he obviously was docked to the Marine guys that he worked with through his career. And, you know, you grew up with that around you. Did that, did that influence, did your parents influence you to go into the Navy or was it just sort of a thing that was kind of like there that you loved and, and you grew up in that world and it was just a natural kind of progression for you to get in? Probably both, Aaron. I wanted to, I, I used to think it was so cool that my dad could stop at a car accident and help people. And that always spoke to me. 
And the first couple of years when I was younger, first couple of years of high school, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And well, in some know, ways, just, you sort of were, right? <laughs> you you wanted to be a marine <laughs> biologist, and then you ended up, you know, being a marine biologist. That's kind of <laughs> ironic. That's true. I guess I never thought about it like that. Because you're not an it. idiot, Jody. That's why you never thought of it like that. Is because you're a smart person. No, I'm going to start. You, I, I'm totally going to start. You're an educated man. You're an educated man. So you would never think something as stupid as calling a Navy <laughs> doctor a marine biologist. Oh, man. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you in the comments. Anyway, continue, Jody. <laughs> yeah, so it did influence me. A lot of, I was an only child, and a lot of my bigger brothers and sisters, if you will, were my dad's corpsmen. The people, the sailors that he worked with, I grew up with those people in our house all the time. You know, at some point we had some of them were living with us here and there, you know, as they were moving in, moving out, whatever. And then just always the barbecues. And that, I think, had a huge influence on me. So right around that 11th grade year, I guess, is when I really decided, OK, I want to I want to join the Navy and, you know, I want to go into the special operations fields. Uh, of course, at the time, it was, you know, everything was SEALs. And, and uh, I think I've said this multiple times in public, but I could not pass my screener when I went to boot camp because I was a triathlete and a cross-country guy and a swimmer and all that stuff in, in high school, but I could not do pull-ups or push-ups to save my soul. I could run and swim like a fish. Um, and so I had to kind of figure that out. And by the time I went to field med school, which is the one where you go to, you know, to to kind of get indoctrinated to the Marine Corps way of life. By then I had it down and I could do 20 dead hangs, you know, all the things. Right. Mm -hmm. But they wouldn't let us screen out of there. There were some guys that came from recon to screen. And at the time you couldn't go straight there. You had to go to a hospital first. So I went to a hospital, went to Somalia. And then when I was ready to take the, the pipeline for us had just started officially. And it's funny, if you look at my original paperwork, it says Forest Recon. You know, it's, I mean, it's just all kinds of beat up. And it was a SEAL that was screening me. And I, I crushed that test. And he's like, dude, I can get you into buds, like, right meow. <laughs> and I don't know. It just, it, it's a whole longer story. But I met a guy, a recon corpsman in Somalia. And I was like, hey, what do you do? You know, we were on a, a ship and they were doing some stuff. And so he told me all about it. And he said, he's like, bro. We're like the underdogs. Nobody knows about us. And it's not because we're like super secret squirrels. We're just like the bastard children of the bastard children. But he said, you will never find a better group of people in your life. And that spoke to me. So as soon as I got back from that IATA Somalia, I, you know, I found out about it and, and did it. And of course, this is all on paper with carbon copy paper and, you know, no computers back then. Right. But, you know, when that SEAL was like, hey, dude, I can get you in buds right now. And I was like, no, man, I think I'm going to do this recon thing. Like, And I remember that guy to this day, and I've been in touch with him since because he kind of changed my life. He he undersold it, which is actually what sold me. He was not trying to be like, oh, bro, blah, blah, blah. You know, he was like, dude, it's a great group of dudes, but it always sucks. We don't get any money. We don't, you know, and it was like, oh, you're speaking nice. language. That's true. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that, that's so true. The, that sort of thing is that that's like catnip to guys like us. Like, hey, you're going to be an underdog. Nobody's going to know what you do. We have a righteous mission, but you're just going to get just crapped on the entire time. There's there's a good portion of us that are like, oh no, the mission's that good. The people are that good. Let's go, baby. I'm in. Yeah, man. And so I I got back to the you know got into the pipeline and and just it was it was off to the races from there. It's a two year. Our program is two years. Actually, it's about two to two and a half now, because when I went through, we would go to the short course. It used to be 300 F1 and we used to have PJs there. My class didn't because I think you all had just stood up Kirkland, but it mm. was, I was in Fort Sam. So we, I was the second to last class that went through at Fort Sam before they moved to Bragg, but it was the six month Sockham, uh, or so, we called it SOMED. It's, I still have my shirt. It's funny. Uh, from, <laughs> from 95. Right. But it was, you know, that first six months. So we had seals, um, Rangers, Green Berets, of course, and oh, we had a couple of foreign foreign guys in our class as well. But the PJs, you all had just moved, I think, in that time. Yeah, frame. You're, you're not wrong though, because we in I've always really liked the recon guys, and that's probably because I've I was kind of put through school with them because in the '90s, and I couldn't tell you, I don't know if it was mid '90s or or late '90s, um, 
but there was a, a big recruitment effort for combat control and, you know, they needed people that were already combat dive already free fall, or at least could go right to free fall already airborne and all that kind of stuff. And that were good people. And they, they did a massive recruiting effort and made the, the sister service transition from the Marine Corps to the air force really easy. So a lot of combat controllers, um, you know, one of which we had on was a, a command master sergeant, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, all came from recon and they were all really good dudes. And they really, they really helped set a, a good culture for combat control uh, going forward, which was, which was pretty awesome. I mean, there's well-known folks that are CCTs or retired CCTs that were recon guys. They got a really good culture over there. PJ well, side too. Yeah there, was, just, there was yeah. While, yeah, there was a while where we were just like straight up. We were like, Hey, are you a, are you a recon Marine? And they'd be like, yep. They'd be like, Oh, you don't even have to do in doc. Come on over. I actually worked for, it was yep. hilarious. I worked for a guy for a long time that was not an in doc grad. He was a prior force recon dude. And it was funny because every once in a while you'd be like, well, I mean, okay, chief, but you didn't go to Indoc, so whatever. And he did not find that funny, by the way. So, uh, so I'll do a little idea. name dropping here. Um, did you all know Roger Sparks, Pig Frog? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so he and I worked together uh, at First Force, and then I don't know if you know Chris Kloftenegger. Yeah, from Moffat. He's I a Moffat. Yeah, he's uh, he's over at Onyx now. So he runs Onyx Industries, which is a, a consulting company and a contracting company. And before that. He was at Moffat. He was a guard guy out of Moffat. Good guy. Yeah, and then another guy. I won't say his name on on air because I think he's doing other secret squirrel stuff. But both <laughs> him and Chris, and then there's a couple others that were Sarks. We were we used to be called Sarks, Special Amphibious Reconnaissance Corpsman, and I think a lot of us still identify with that. But you mm-hmm. know, um, yeah, there's a lot of guys who have gone over to that side. I don't know if I've ever met any who have come the other way. Nobody's like, oh man. We've got it so good over here. I want to. I want to well, go. That's the, how it goes. The, the, the money, the money spoils you. The money and equipment <laughs> yeah. spoils you. I yeah. mean, nothing. I don't know if you're tracking this, Jody, but nothing but Arteryx touches Aaron's skin. That's because he's a Patagonia. <laughs> get it away from me. I, unless it's got that bone frog on it, I don't want to give me that. Give me that dead bird gang, and that is it, my dude. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I was. I don't know how to even. I was sewing something for my daughter when she was young, like little, little. Um, my wife was like, I need a bonnet for her for class because there was a bunch of lice going on and my daughter had long hair. So I sewed her all these like super cute bonnets and she goes to school and she's like four or whatever. And, and all the teachers are like, Oh, your mom meets that cute bonnets, you know? And she's like, no, my dad made this because <laughs> we, we all learned to sew and we had sewing machine and not even riggers. None of us were riggers, but we all learned to sew because if we wanted gear or, you know, whatever, we had no money. So we'd have to make stuff. Yeah, uh, yep. you know, so a lot of old recon guys are pretty good seamstresses. Don't tell anybody. That, but that, but that, that lack of money thing is is very real, and I, I think people don't realize it because you look at, and I'll just boil it down to the kind of the soft community, right? So, Air Force SEALs, even Green Berets get a lot of money. Well, Marsock um, now too. I've I've seen I've had the Marsock now does. I've had to spoon in my but mouth. Historically, <laughs> historically, and in the normal Marine Corps and even the Navy is is it's it's tough. It's tough out there. It is. It I is. mean, in the joke now is they're still getting hand me downs. You know, oh, and it's, it's Dermo's our man. best friend. I don't know if it's called the yeah. same thing in Air Force, but I can't tell Just you how out much there dumpster diving. Yeah, man, totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I think it also brings you together because it's it's almost like you knew, like when we all stood up Marsoc and I was the first company from the West Coast to deploy an Alpha company. And once you get that inject of money and you're like, oh, this is soft money, right? Mm-hmm. But you came from nothing. So you're you're almost like Annie, and I might be dating myself, but, you know, like Orphan Annie. And, and all of a sudden you're, <laughs> you're living in Daddy Warbuck's house and you're like, oh, man, this is awesome. <laughs> This is how it is on the other side. So that gets you. So we're up to like ninety nine. So we, yeah, we got sorry. you. Not, no, it's okay. Like this is this is my job on the podcast. Is I'm the one that remembers where we like go off the trail. Like I'm the guy that's standing there. I'm like, hey guys, we're over here, and then we go continue on the same trail. So it's like ninety. We're at ninety nine. It sounds like so you got through. You know that first you got through SOCOM or SOCOM or whatever it is. The did you guys do the short course or the long course? So I did the short course. That's what I was okay. saying. I did the short course because yeah. I had gone. I went to ARS at the time, which was on the East Coast. It's gone now. It's BRC. Mm-hmm. 
it's our recon school. And then mm-hmm. I went to combat dive after that. And then I went to jump school and then I went to SOMED and then I went back to dive for our dive medicine portion. And then I okay. went to third recon. So that takes us to 97. So I was in third okay. recon for 96 to 97 and then came to the West coast and we can condense a lot of time there because I was it first recon battalion well, company, the battalion. Then I was an instructor at field med school. I went to first force. Then we stood up MARSOC. Then I was an instructor again at BRC and then finally moved to the East coast. So by then I'm like climbing the ranks, but had done a whole bunch of deployments. And unlike a lot of military families, my, my girls have only moved twice because we were oh, in nice. California for 13 years. And then we were here. Now I had five or six different duty stations, right? But for Sark's, I mean, you've got Oki, the West Coast, the East Coast, and then a couple of schools here and there, but that's kind of it. So once okay. you get planning somewhere, you can really stay there for a really long time if you want to. Nice. Well, let's let's talk about Recon a little bit because Recon was that predecessor to Marsoc. Like people are are sort of aware kind of what Marsoc is, and Marsoc is our youngest uh, our youngest brothers in arms. If if you just look at when they stood up and opened the doors, but they had a long history of recon before that. Can you briefly touch kind of on that recon mission and, and what you guys were actually supporting? And then, you know, obviously that'll, that'll kind of like transition ourselves into, you know, what MARSOC is and, and how they're doing there. And, and I want to hit something along the way there, but let's talk that first force recon mission and really what the Marine recon mission was all about. Right. So you've got division and the recon the units are still out there and still doing great work. You've got the division recon asset, if you will. And that's kind of a deep reconnaissance eyes and ears for the, Commanders for the landing force and then force recon, which is a MEF asset, uh, the Marine Expeditionary Force. So it's the difference between the three star and the two star there. And again, they're also capable of deep recon and also, uh, you know, do all the VBSS, GoPlat. They're more of a jack. Well, everybody's kind of a jack of all trades, but they get more of that in the direct action type mission. I went to Iraq with first force and we did a lot of direct action and, and, you know, did some, um, we did some classic recon missions too. I actually went on a no kidding bridge rep reconnaissance patrol where we took an engineer with us, just like they said we would in school. And we had to be very careful <laughs> because he's not a reconnaissance Marine. And, you know, and we're like patrolling right by. And it was eight of us alone and unafraid deep in it, you know, kind of like patrolling by a, an Iraqi camp, uh, you know, or uh, uh, Al Qaeda, you know, like anyway, I mean, And then we show up to this bridge and this dude gets out and nerds out on his bridge stuff and does what he's got to do. And then we hightailed it out of there. And I just remember on that patrol thinking, wow, like they told us this what happened. And here we are doing it. You know, it was pretty wild. Just like the instructor said, really here. This is amazing. I did this at the, uh, (laughs) the finishing course. Um, that's amazing. Recon, I actually, so, you know, a, a lifetime ago, my, my, uh, swim coach was a, a, a recon dude. Like he was one of the Marine, you know, recon operators, the force recon guy. And it was always such an interesting mission set with me. And he was lucky enough to go in, um, you know, a very, very short, uh, very short stint in the, uh, in the recon community. I think he was in for like six years, but had some good missions kind of at the beginning of, uh, you know, the beginning of the, the war there. And, um, you know, we always talked highly of it and, uh, the, the other thing I wanted to kind of kind of question you is you're in a in a very unique position of you had some time under your belt and you had some trips under your belt before September 11, 2001. Uh, where were you? Where wh- what was your duty station when you know September 11th kicked off? I was at First Recon Battalion. I think we were called Battalion at the time, and I remember driving in. You know, I mean, the TV was on in, in the aid station because we'd all show up to work at the aid station. Uh, I wasn't in a platoon at the time. I'd just come back from a deployment because I did a deployment in early 2000. And that was back when your medal was measured by how fast you could run or, you know, how far you could swim and, and all that yep. kind of stuff, right? Because nobody had really been to combat. There were the the original Gulf War guys. And then but really before that, you're looking at like NAM, which right. that's my dad's era. And it was interesting. Um, yeah, I remember walking in and, the guys are all like sitting around the TV and it was up in the corner, you know, like the big actual like boxy TV. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're like, and somebody said like this plane just crashed into the towers and it was gnarly. Of course the whole base locked down and I was calling my wife uh, to try to touch base and see what was going on. And I just, it was, it was pretty wild. We all of course thought we were like leaving next week and 
it didn't play out like that. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't leave. I didn't hit Iraq until me personally until 2004 because I was waiting on my orders. I already had the orders. I was just waiting on my time to transfer to field med school to be an instructor. And uh, it was right after I left that the guys actually loaded up and went, you know, several, it ended up being a few months, I think. And of course, you know, you've got that sitting on the bench feeling, but I would never give back my time at field med school. That was one of the most rewarding tours I ever had, you know, because you're bringing all these young corpsmen in, these sailors that are going to be serving with the Marines. And especially then we all knew everybody was going right over. That was a super rewarding tour. And then when I got to Iraq, I remember seeing so many of those young sailors running around, which was awesome for me. They're like, Whoa, you know, so it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that we can relate to that just because we get guys that are on the teams and they, they want to train, they want to deploy, they just want to continue to do the job. And then they get hit with orders to go be an instructor. And they're like, dude, how do I get out of these orders? You know, I don't want to go be an instructor. I want to keep doing a mission. Well, something's got to feed the machine. Something's got to make, you know, more operators. So they end up going, they end up really enjoying that assignment and then shaping what the career field looks like and, and all these guys. And then they see them later on and they, and they love it. And they see, you know, kind of what, the the roles that they played in who they are today and i mean and that's not just for instructors either that's that's for folks going and doing staff gigs and and stuff like that it's like dude i don't want to do it but yet the like you know i i went and did socks in and then socom headquarters and the education and experience and exposure to not just some of the programs that they're doing and and the level the level of that they're you know, thinking at, but just some of those conversations that I wasn't even a part of, I was just an outsider were enlightening. Um, so you can, every assignment and tour you can make, it, it is what you make of it. Oh, 100%. And it opened, like you said, it really opens your aperture. And then you can bring that back. If you're in a staff tour, you can bring that back because you've seen behind the curtain and you might, mm-hmm. for me, I, it was an education and money, you know, where money comes from and, certain pots and money, all that kind of stuff. But the human element of being an instructor, and I would always try to relay that to the guys and gals that did not want to go do an instructor tour. I tried to help them understand you're able, you now have the ability to put your stamp on every single person that comes out of that program for the next three years or two years or whatever it is. And if you're complaining about the quality of the people coming out, this is your opportunity to go and, you know, Put your piece, put your spin on it. Yeah. I used to say oh, yeah. that too. You know, almost it was like a, a speech. I should have written it down on a card or on a wall somewhere. I could have just saved myself the time. But when instructors would sign into the schoolhouse <laughs> at Kirtland, I'd look at them and I'd go, hey, <clears throat> you know, if we graduate 50 people a year, let's say we graduate 50 PJs a year and that's a low, you know, whatever, you're going to work here for four years. Our Kirtland's only 500 people big. I'm, I'm telling you, you're going to be able to influence 50% of the career field. If you care about something and you want to make sure something is, you know, cemented in our culture, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk about 50% of our career field by the time you're out of here. By the time you get back to the teams, 50% of those dudes have heard your voice. Like that's a pretty big deal. And people really don't, um, you know, in the staff gig too, like peaches, I'll just be honest with you. I heard staff gig and I got a little bit nauseous. So I yeah. had to like, wait, cause I was like, Oh God, Oh God, no. But it's, it's the same sort of thing. You know, you, you start working in those circles and you don't realize that even in some of those, you know, one-off positions that might not be the most fun and they're definitely not the most tactical, but you're, you're working in circles where you're having conversations that have true impact. And uh, that's, that's really cool. Um, all right. So 2004, you got in and out of Iraq. Um, that couldn't have been your first deployment in the GWAT. I, I have a feeling, but you started probably doing the same thing that we all did, which was the GWAT road show. So home for a couple of weeks, enough to train and then, and then back on the road. How was your experience with that? Yeah, actually that first 2004 was my first trip over because in the GWAT, at least because I was an instructor, mm-hmm. I did two yep. years as an instructor. So I was there from 2000, late 2002 to early 2004, something like that, whatever it was. And so, yeah, that Iraq trip was my first, came back and then um, was in the cycle, like getting ready to go again. And that's when the whole Marsoc thing happened. 
So it was in that 2006, I think it was October of 2006 when the, I was not a part of debt one that stood up while I was at field med, which was the concept for Marsoc. Marsoc. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, said, okay, Marsoc's a thing now, October, 2006. I was an alpha company then. So we were already training and we were your typical force recon footprint, which was the, the platoon. And then we had a trailer platoon from the conventional side. So we deployed like that. And, you know, we went, um, we did some stuff down in like the Philippines and whatever popped over there first and then went to Afghanistan. So that was my 2006, 2007 deployment. And I got lucky in the sense of not doing too many back-to-backs because I did the force recon back-to-back or, you know, that one to uh, Iraq came back was alpha company for Marsoc. So that's all technically within the same set of orders just because we changed the name. So I did two combat deployments there, then was an instructor again at BRC after that one, then came back or I came back from that deployment was an instructor at BRC. And in 2010 is when I moved over to the East Coast. Oh, it's got to be a good dog. Yeah, good. What kind of dog are we work yeah, with? Good yeah, dog she's, on there. she's a vicious mini schnauzer with uh, eight teeth. Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, you're good. <laughs> I knew it's it was going to hey, happen. Don't, it's it's okay. Yeah. It, yeah. The uh, my dog. It will, I mean, I live in Las Vegas now, but when I was up in Washington, like I'd have our dog in here, and occasionally she'd get bored and just decide to hop up on me yeah the wife is gone and my daughter's still you know of course crashed out because she's a teenager and so i was like i'll put her in here with me um but anyway yeah so after that i moved to we went out to the east coast to marsoc headquarters because by then i was a senior chief which is an e8 in the navy and i was doing kind of like the staff type gig there and we were so undermanned i was up for nine and uh, jumped back in a team and then picked up nine, like the first month or two that I was in that team. So it was myself and and my partner, uh, you know, Sark was a second class. So I was like back to being HM2 Fletcher again. It was oh, so awesome. You know, how awesome, I was going to say, yeah, how awesome, yeah, we all heard that. We're like, oh my God, you got to go be the junior again. How awesome Easy. was that? Like, it if was, you need me, I'll be over here packing my ruck and doing work. Yeah, well, and I, I should say that when I left BRC, because I was still technically a short course guy, I went back to the long course. And that's yeah. our, yeah, so I did the second six months. It was really about seven or eight, eight months, whatever it ended up being, as a senior chief. So I was a super senior guy going through, which was, it was awesome. And it was a great kind of like refresher. And it was interesting because we were relearning a lot of the things that were in the short course when I went through. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, did that. And then, yeah, I jumped back in that team and it was so, I was older than everybody by seven or eight years, seven years, I think was the next oldest guy to me. And I was older than a lot of the other guys by double digits. So I, they call me, yeah, my nickname was Graybush in the team. Yeah. Of yeah, course. Of course. course. Right. <laughs> well, that, well, that's one of those, uh, that's a crazy thing too, but like not only just time, but like, look at the things that you accomplished in that time. You know what I mean? So you're there and it, it's two ends of the spectrum really. And it's funny that you brought up, you know, Roger Sparks, but, um, you know, Roger and I were actually on the same indoc team. So I failed. He passed because he's great and I'm not. Um, but Roger, was, I distinctly remember having a conversation with Roger and, and he was just like, yeah, man, like he's got that really funny affect to his yeah. voice where he's kind of just like super chill about it. He's like, yeah, man, you know, like, I mean, these days are, are tough, but they're not as bad as, you know, like getting pinned down in a valley or anything. And that blew my mind. Like he would talk about firefights and compare them to like, the, because he is a very, I mean, he's well decorated. Yeah. Roger Spark before he ever became a PJ. Yeah. He was a pretty big name in the recon community for some stuff that he did. Um, but you had to kind of occupy that space too. Like you, you have done the thing. These guys are hungry and chomping at the bit to get out of the long course so they can go deploy. And at that point, everybody would wanted to go to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and go fight and GWAT. And you're just kind of like, yeah, you know, it's, I've been there a couple of times, boys. Like how, how did you, did you share that experience with them? Or, I mean, was it, was it like a uh, story time with Graybush over in, in NC or what? It's always story time with Graybush. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what we're calling this one too. By the way, the name of this podcast is Story Time with Gray Bush. The boys will love that. It was, it was, yeah. I mean, I tried to. I've always been. I love people. I'm, I'm a connector type of person anyway. And you know, if somebody wants to listen or has a question or whatever, I'm more than happy to to share. I'm not somebody who will be saying, you know, when something's bad, like, oh, well, you know, you should think this or think that. But I was always there. And I think that draws people to me at times because I'm I'm just like that, you know, old guy in the corner who's like, hey, man, do you want to talk or not? It's cool. Either way, <laughs> like I'm good. Um, yeah, so it, it did come up quite a bit just because things we were learning I had actually done. And that was valuable when we're learning something. And I remember thinking when I went through the short course, oh, man, we'll never do this. I've done right. every single thing I've ever been trained to do with the exception of a pericardial synthesis. Everything else I've done on somebody, which is pretty nice. gnarly if you think about it. I don't know what that it's is. A, it's a procedure for your foot, Jared. Don't worry about it. It's uh, <laughs> okay. Parry means foot, like you parry a soccer ball. Okay, like cardio. You're going to be very excited because it's a hard procedure. No, it's uh, removing cardio. Removing, I know cardio. Removing fluid from around the heart. I know it has to do with the heart. <laughs> yeah. So the heart is in a is in a bag. Sometimes that bag fills up with fluid and sucks, and you have to remove that fluid. And you with do it with a, a big needle. needle. It is cool. Yeah, it, it, the needle is huge. <laughs> so, uh, like yeah. Like pulp well, huge. Well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, one of those. <laughs> yeah. You want me to stick this in my heart? Oh, stick... well, that's the rock, but. Yeah, listen, <laughs> listen, while we're talking about, while we're talking about these things, I gotta, it brings up, like, if, if you're not hydrated for these events, it is going to kill you. I don't know if you know this, Jody, but yes, we actually is. have a partner, Hoist, that has IV level hydration. You know how hard it is to keep a patient hydrated. They actually make a sports drink. It's pre-mixed, and then they have like little powders and stuff that you can bring with you. It's fantastic. We have a code at checkout. It's one's ready at checkout, so you get a sweet deal. If, if you're ever looking for hydration, it's actually only one of three DOD-approved beverages that you're supposed to drink for hydration. Uh, it's way better than two, by the way. I don't know if you had that, but that stuff's garbage compared to Super, so. super salty. <laughs> Uh, oh, it's super salty. Trip, trip I'll, I'll send you some voice. It's awesome. You can drink it in a workout. It's it's fire. It's fantastic. So code one's ready at checkout. You don't have to worry about it. I'll get you some. But we and and that's exactly why we bring Aaron on here because uh, those smooth, silky smooth. Right into it. Yes. I was like, I mean, what's going just, on right look now? At that. This is so right. Awesome. Didn't even know you were. Yeah. you didn't even know you were in an ad. Read, and then bang, you're in an ad. And now, now you're part of Team Hoist, and we can go forward and do good things together. So. Check it out. I'm still not sure what to do with my hands, but you know, it's okay. We're going to, we're going to bring it all back in. So the the long course is done. And then now is Marsoc completely stood up at this point? Like, are you, you working in and out of Marsoc spaces? And what was it like to, to stand that up? I, I, we, you know, when we do task orgs and we have like reorganizations inside of ASOC, sometimes a flight, like a new flight structure will like completely just kill everybody they're like what are we supposed oh to be doing gosh. who am i talking to what am i doing i imagine setting up an entire command um or you know a, what is it a brigade level for you guys that, that has to be a huge move it was interesting because when i was at first force our aid station was still three or four barracks rooms like linked together that was how we lived i can't tell you <laughs> how many you know they say don't do barracks barracks medicine right I'm like mm -hmm. I, our aid station is <laughs> barracks what do you what do you want <laughs> yeah right and so when we came back, it, we were first Marine Special Operations Battalion on the West Coast. And the East Coast is where the Death Star was. So second and third Marine Special Operations Battalion were over there. And they had actually built a, um, what do you call it? Like a, a, a big building, you know, that, and that's what we called the Death Star. So I moved over there and that was very new and unique to me because you've got this massive building, super nice. I mean, beautiful. And all the people that are running around in there that came from all walks of life. Because Marsoc was stood up on the backs of the reconnaissance community. And the reconnaissance community kind of suffered to some degree, especially on the Corman side, for it. Because we were already undermanned. And then this big thing stood up with the same re um, requirement for the Sarks, for the medical people. But it more than doubled. I think it almost tripled. And we barely had enough to cover the recon units. So, it, I mean, it was a hot mess. And the one thing I will say about the Marines with with the medical stuff is, and my dad complained about it, and I'm sure the people before <laughs> him complained about it, and I'm sure people 20 years now from now, it, the Marines, when they plan, 
even though we've been with them forever. They're always like building all their plans. And then the lone sailor in the room will raise their hand and be like, hey, what about a corpsman? They're like, oh, man, we forgot about that. Oh. You know, and that's <laughs> what happened with the with the MARSOC. And we even got proactive and tried to build something to send to them. Like, this is what's going to be needed. And so we were way behind the power curve medically um, with personnel. Just because you can't, it's a two and a half year pipeline. You can't just like pop them out and the schools yeah. can only handle so much. I mean, it was, it was a hot mess and still to this day, it's getting better, but it, yeah, it was a lot. So what is the, uh, people are like 100% interested. We get this all the time. And a lot of times we try to, you know, just defer, be like, Hey, it's kind of not our lane or whatever, but what is the actual pipeline? I think, uh, you guys are going by Sodic now. Uh, is that the, the entire overarching name for? Yeah. Special operations, independent duty corpsman. And it's, okay. if you have not been to field med, so you go to boot camp, core school and then field, uh, yeah, core school and then field med. Field med is the field medical training battalion. It's, Basic, you know, trauma, T-Tri-C, and basic Marine Corps stuff. Like learning to, you know, not call the gunny big sarge and, and uh, recognize rank and stuff like that. Things sure. that will get your head bitten off. And then just how right. to, you know, how to yeah, live yeah. in the field with the Marines. That's where all the conventional folks go. So that's technically the first school, though most people have already been to it. And then after that, you go to BRC, which is now only in Pendleton, and it's basic reconnaissance course. That's, okay. I think it's three, three and a half months now. And that's always, it's all the land warfare and communications. They do some shooting and a lot of amphib stuff, but not subsurface. So it's all, you know, scout swimming, working with Zodiacs, over the horizon, navigation, nautical navigation, all that stuff. And then you go to Marine Combatant Dive School, which is our combat dive school. It's, I think, two, two and a half months also, something like that, three months. And that's same as every other combat dive school, right? You know, it's, in fact, it's all the same. I don't know if you guys know this, but the Navy is the one who puts out the standards for all dive schools, which makes mm -hmm. sense, right? I mean, it's the Navy. Yep. So you go to that. And then after that is a, I think it's a three week course. That's just medicine specific. And that's where the, you know, the corpsmen get all the hyperbaric medicine stuff. You go to jump school, I think SEER school is included now as well. It was not when I was going through, but I think that's a part of it as well. Um, yeah, free fall is later if you go. It's it's team funded, but that's it. Oh, and of course, uh, 18 Delta. I didn't <laughs> kind of forgot that one. So that's where that whole like <laughs> two, two and a half years comes in because that school just by itself is a year. And that's a big change just in the last couple of years. The Navy sees IDCs. You have to be an E5 or above. Well, we're now trying to recruit street to fleet. So it's impossible to have somebody as an E5 mm. if you've recruited them off the street. And I was a part of this. We had a couple of people coming through that we sent as E4s. And then what we did was we built kind of this mentor like uh, program for them so that if you're an E4, no kidding, IDC, when you're in garrison, you're practicing with a mentor IDC. And when you go downrange, it's a free game. You can do, you know, unsupervised, right? But we would do that until they would make E5. That kind of, like, satisfied the Navy. But now that's become a program of record so they can go through street to fleet. So you might get an IDC out of the program. It's still Most of them will be E4 just because of meritorious promotion or whatever after graduating the school. But I've actually seen one E3 get all the way through. Did did you guys have any growing pains with the street to fleet thing? Because I I know you know uh, we at least in the Air Force we have always kind of had the street to fleet. We have a lot of cross trainees and service as well, which helps. But um, you know to to go to SEALs, you used to have to have another job, and then you go to that, and then they started the eighteen X ray program for the for the eighteen series guys. I think that was two thousand and five. Don't quote me on that. The ODA dudes out there, but um, and there were some growing pains because, you know, they had this culture of they were already well-established um, folks that had been in the Army, Navy for a long time. Um, and then now you got these kids that think that whether or not they think they're entitled to it or not. But it's just there it was definitely a cultural shift um, for them. Are you, did you guys experience the same they kind of thing? They are experiencing it. Not yet. So they're deep in the throes of it. And they're still well, and doing here's it. here's the other thing. 
the Navy and the Marines are, are so at least you can say, well, it's the Air Force's problem. The thing that we faced from a behind the curtain, behind the scenes type of problem, and it's still there, is who's paying for all this? The Marines say the Navy should pay for it because they're sailors. The sailors, the, the Navy says the Marines should pay for stuff <laughs> because you're getting that. And it's constant, it's like being the, the unwanted child of divorced parents who hate each other sometimes. I mean, it, it gets crazy. And then, so yes, that's a part of it. Um, the, I feel like our screening process is pretty good as far as getting people, good quality people through the, the SARCs, SOIDCs, whatever that are coming out, I think are just, I'm, I'm an, um, I'm one of these guys. So I hate hearing people say, oh, it's, you know, I used to go to school uphill both ways in the snow, barefoot, yeah. you know, like every <clears throat> generation brings something different. And I can say that, yes, as an instructor at PRC, there was objective data that the young folks coming in were not as most, and I'm generalizing, were not as strong and fast as my generation. Mm-hmm. They had the same desire, but I think it's because a lot of them didn't grow up where I was not allowed to come in the house during the day. My dad put a water fountain on the spigot outside, and that's where I got a drink. <laughs> right? And so I grew up. Hose. Yes. Oh, no, we got fancy. He found like an actual little water fountain that went where the hose goes. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've said this before on air, I think that you've got the same mentality in young people where they – they're playing war just like we did, but our version of war was shooting each other in the face with BB guns or slingshots or throwing rocks at each other outside running around. And there's this predominantly online and it gives mm-hmm. them the advantage when I remember when drones first came in and I was like, whoa, right. And these young people are just flying around like it's second nature. It would have taken me a two week class to learn to fly that stupid thing. I'd probably still crash it. So they're right. very up and attuned to all of that. Whereas my generation was, you know, I mean, I've got calluses on my knuckles because I drag them around, right? Like you put something on my heavy on my back. And mm-hmm. even when I first came in, I could already carry it because I've been used to doing that. So the mentality is there. It's just a physicality that is a little different. Of course, folks that play sports in school tend to do better because, you know, they're used to that physicality, but, that's the biggest difference, I think, in the in the young folks coming in nowadays. It's not the mindset. It's just like, oh, hey, this. And I literally heard young yeah. Marines, never sailors, but I heard a couple of young Marines when I was at BRC, BRC say it didn't look this hard in the video games. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Jeez. I, so, I mean, as, yeah, as a senior NCO, NCO and that kind of stuff, like I struggle with that too. But I mean, even as a parent right now, I've, I've got a 15 year old and 11 year old. And, um, and, and I heard you, Jody, I heard you say that you've got a teenager and I know, I know Aaron's got teenagers mm-hmm. as well. So it, it's, it is a struggle, but having, and I, I got to be careful to make sure I don't say anything classified, but, uh, you know, I, at where I'm at now, like I, I have, I work with, you know, anything from, from JTACs to A10s to space, uh, space folks to cyber folks and seeing all the different, uh, mentalities, capabilities, who they're recruiting, um, how they're operating is, is mind blowing. And you can see the, the, not just the generational difference, but the, just the kind of mindset difference between all of them. And they're all doing fantastic and amazing things and incredible. Like I, I was just, just last week I was at, in a brief with two different briefs with um, space and cyber. And I, I'm like, okay, well like here, I'm here to get an education. Like let's, let's do this. And I'm blown away. Like these guys are like, oh yeah, we were just writing this code. And then we had to script this and script this. And I'm like, dude, you guys are talking a whole nother level that, that I have no idea. But I come talk to my son about it, like, and he's like, "Yeah, dude, you just like it's not, yeah, yeah, not dude, like, yeah, dad, you just do yeah, this duh. and this." And I'm like, "Like, I'm picture, yeah, I always, okay. anytime anybody ever does that, I picture like the classic, like dudes in like really dark rooms, and they're like hacker voice. There's, I'm in, you know, like that ain't how it is, homie. It's I'm usually in. just some dude on his couch, like with one window open, and he's got like, you know, he's watching ESPN in the background, or he's watching whatever movie. He's like, oh yeah, and he's just decimating somebody with non kinetic effects, but." Um, we, you know, we see the same thing on, on our side, to be honest with you, Jody, we, you know, we, it's, it's a cultural change and everybody, it's, 
so hot right now to talk about Gen Z and how it is that you, you talk to them. But oddly enough, they're just humans. They, uh, they grew up in the same world, in the same universe that you did. So you have a lot more in common with them uh, than you would think. So as you were transitioning to that, that command, right, you were making the, the jump between us and them. Like your GWAT time was over. You were no longer allowed to be the junior Jody Fletcher. You had to actually like grow up and put on a uniform every day and talk about haircuts. First of all, what was your ism? Was it grass? Was it haircuts? What was your thing? Showing be up a, on time? My ism was be a good human. Was what? Be a good human. Yeah. Nice. Like That's don't a good treat one. each other like dirt. Wow. Crazy. A basic level of human respect. That's mind blowing, <laughs> right? I needed to right, see right? like operators talking trash about the admin folks. Like that drove me crazy. Oh yeah. You yeah. know, you're not gonna, why would you talk trash about the person who pays you? Like yeah. <laughs> of all Absolutely. people, yeah. you should be super cool to them. So when you were in, were, were you in Marsoc at that point? Was that your first real command gig when you kind of crossed that bridge? Yeah, I came back from that deployment and I was a master chief and I rolled into the command master chief position there because, and I think it's still, well, it is still that way. We try to have former SOIDCs. They've all been, I was number three and I think they're up to number five right now or six. And everybody's been a recon corpsman, a SARC or a SOIDC. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what, what were the challenges there? Like, I know that there's, there's a million challenges every single day that I could list out, even at my, you know, my position, that's nowhere near command level um, stuff. But, you know, for you, what, what were those things, those big rocks that you were trying to break for the community? My biggest rock was tribalism. And that's what I was just talking about. I yeah. hated to see people, this tribe versus that tribe. And one day it hit me, and I don't know where it came from. I think somebody said something about the tip of the spear, and they were talking about operators. And it just hit me, and I've used it ever since then, especially when I'm talking to military folks. The tip of the spear is not lethal by itself, right? It's sharp, but if I were just to give you a tip of a spear, you might scratch somebody up or poke their eye out or something. You're going to have a really hard time killing them. It gains its strength when it's attached to a very solid staff, and that weapon becomes lethal when everybody's got a hand on it and they're pushing it forward. So whenever people would check in, all the sailors used to have to come visit me when they would check in. And normally, you know, historically, it's like you go up to the CMC's office, you're in your dress blues, you sit there for five minutes, it's super awkward, and then you leave. Well, I had the, I was lucky, Marsoc is not huge, it's only a few thousand people, and then the sailor component, any Marine component has about 10% of the population generally are sailors. So I had, I don't know, two to 300 sailors. So I had the luxury of being able to meet with everybody who checked in for a pretty good period of time. And at the time I was ultra running. So I just wanted to be outside and get my runs in also. So they would schedule 30 minute runs with me. That's what it turned into. And in those 30 minutes, we and we had to walk sometimes. It just depended, you know, it wasn't a race. But what it was, you were stuck with me for 30 minutes. And that gave me the ability to talk to that sailor, regardless of what they were doing in the command, about the culture that I was trying to create. And that culture was one of appreciation. And to appreciate people, you have to first understand them. So my biggest challenge was getting, you know, and I'll just generalize like the operators to understand the administrators and the logisticians and everybody. Because once you understand, wow, that person works, A, they're a good human. B, they work really hard at what they do. C, I wouldn't want that job just like they wouldn't want my job. Then you gain this appreciation. And once they learn to appreciate each other, everybody starts coming together as a team. And now you've got like the whole spear approach where somebody, you know, says, hey, man, thanks for fixing our trucks. They're running great. Or thanks for fixing my pay. And you know, the story I always share is I went into one of the administrators spaces one day and there was a young lady there and she was in her utilities and she was dirty and she was an administrator. So she was rarely dirty, right. In her uniform, but she had a giant smile on her face. And I was like, Hey, you know, like what's going on? And she's like, Master Chief, I'm having the best day. And I was like, cool. Tell me about it. Long story short, yeah. some of the guys had come in and she helped them with their pay, you know, something because what the, the big perception with the operators, right, is they're a bunch of cowboys and this and that. But what people don't understand is you're training so much that when you are in garrison, you don't have a lot of time to get stuff fixed. You're constantly, you know, back out the door. So she had helped these dudes and, and 
one day they were like, hey, we're going to the machine gun range. You want to go and shoot guns? And she was like, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Was, I do want to go shoot guns. Right. And so that was that appreciation where they were showing appreciation for what she had done for them and appreciating the work that because they understood her. And then she got to go do something that she probably would not normally get to go do. And when you build that type of culture, I, I say, you know, you've got it when people don't want to leave, regardless of their job. They get their set of orders and they're banging on your door like, Master Chief, I don't want to leave. And I would always tell them, take what you've learned here and try to try to spread it somewhere else. So tribalism, Aaron, to answer your question, was my my big thing. And I told everybody, I don't know if you ever read Legacy, but, you know, and I'll be politically correct, but chapter six is no Richards. Yep. So if, if, you're, if you're reading Legacy, look at chapter six. And before I ever read that book, that was my... That was what I was talking to everybody about on the run was don't be a jerk. Just because you're an operator doesn't mean you get to be a jerk to somebody else. And just because you're an administrator, don't assume you know what the other people are doing. You know the operators. And once you create that environment, then you break those walls down. There's actually a really good book on that called uh, Everybody Matters by Bob Chapman. And and it it talks about like hey when you when you're looking at that and you're you're working with people and you're looking at people understand that you're talking to somebody's husband somebody's wife somebody's son or daughter and would you want somebody treating your son or your daughter or your wife husband or whatever like that and then when you can when you can kind of look at that you go oh well maybe not and then back Jody back to your your comment about you know hey um whether it's the operators or not, like the the whole tip of the spear thing changes. Like it, it's an ebb and flow, right? So if, if as we're entering into September here pretty soon and we're ending the uh, fiscal year, so f- folks that don't know that out there, like we don't go on a calendar year when it comes to money, we go on a fiscal year. So, you know, the end of September, well, a- August, September is a, is a big time. So we got to, you know, make sure that all our, our numbers and everything are right. But, you know, that last week of September, who, who is the most important people within the organization? The yeah. resource advisors, or at least hey, that's what we call HR, them. I don't, so I don't know who. Spend that money, homie. That's right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. They are the most important people, right? So the area of focus should be on them. And that, that changes as you're going through, but, um, man, treating everybody right. Like that hits home with me. I mean, I, I, I can think of several times that I know Aaron can too, where you roll in and, and whether it's the supply sergeant or something like that, it's like, man, Hey, can you talk to this person? Cause they came in here barking orders at me saying, I need this. And they do this like, Oh yeah. Oh, we can Every handle week. that real Every fast. week, baby. What you do know? the operators do? I got it. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was talking yeah. to a, like a, what do you call it? Like a technology company the other day I was speaking and I was talking to them a little bit about the tip of the spear, but they were, you know, as we were, it was a back and forth. And as we were talking, they were saying kind of the same thing. Well, this week, this department is super important. And this week, that department is super important. I was like, so you guys aren't a spear, you're a ninja star. (laughs) Right? At any given moment, one of the points (laughs) is going to be the most important, but everybody needs to be working together as it spins until it hits. Yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic. The, the old ninja star of productivity. Like the ninja that, star. That gets a, it gives us <laughs> Don't a, go ninja a, a nobody now. So, you know, where you are now, you know. So you had your time in command. When did you actually retire? I retired about a year ago. So I think it was June of 21. Fantastic. That explains the beard. Because if I was in the Navy working for the Marines for 29 years, I would also grow a beard out immediately and I would never shave again. The shaving on the weekends thing is always crazy. It always cracks me up about my Marine Corps brothers is, is you will watch somebody walk up to a guy Sunday afternoon and go, hey, Marine, you shave today? And that is a that is a pointed conversation right there. It's, it's usually um, a one way conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, usually yeah. that answer. That answer is usually uh, I'm going right now, Gunny, uh, and then they go shake. And it could have a could have oh, a it's devil dog. You're going to get a double D. Double dog. <laughs> hey, hey, double. hey, devil. Yeah. Um, so you started your transition. I don't think I've ever said it on the podcast. Like, <laughs> I mean, there, I was going. I was going to say I got I got devil dog that uh, Camp Lejeune out in the the oh, PX nice. there. Yeah. I, well, I was dressed exact. I went in wearing shorts and flip flops. 
I, I'm an Air Force guy. Yeah. I'm TDY. I don't know. And and somebody behind me was, hey, Marine. Hey, Marine. You know, and then finally, hey, devil dog, you know, really got that. Basic. And uh, and I turn around because I didn't know. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that he was talking to me. And and uh, I turn around. I'm like, oh, are you talking to me? And he's like, uh, okay, you're not. You're not a Marine. Well, that's, that's the. <laughs> Carry on. I was like, that's oh, the verbal okay. escalation of force. And we as Corman loved like, hey, Marine. Hey, Marine. And of course, you're ignoring them, knowing they're talking to you. Hey, double dog. He'd turn around and he'd be here. Yeah. The cutty would always play, damn it, doc. You know, and you're like, ah, gotcha. <laughs> That's the coolest thing ever. It's like, uh, and ain't nobody messing with the doc. Like the doc is a highly protected asset. Like I'll tell you what, there is no way that, and it's, it, this is, this is a military axiom. There is no way to piss a fighting force off more than if you target their doc. If you shoot at the doc, like you're going to, you're going to catch a whole can of whoop ass from that. Cause you, you're you're the lifeline. You're the doc. You're you're that guy. Um, wh- what are you getting after now, Jody? Like you got a, a lifetime of of accomplishments behind you. I have a feeling you're not the type of person that's going to rest on your laurels very long. So what do you, what are you getting into now? I'm surfing as much as I can, but I live in North Carolina, so that's it's meager at best. Uh, but I'm also willing to gravel, so I do surf in next to nothing, spending time with my girls, and then professionally, I got into executive coaching and consulting and keynote speaking, because that's what kept me in the military, that last two tours. Because when I went officially went the command route, I mean, I lost a ton of money because I lost all my special pays when I went on the conventional side. But I did not, and this is the thing I learned in Marsoc, I did not anticipate loving that job as much as I did. Like the coaching, the mentoring, the leadership stuff. So it kept me in, you know, all the way up there to the end. And I'm I'm just kind of doing that now, but in a corporate setting, and it's funny because before we logged on, you know, I've been writing. I've got finally my book has come to me in my head. I'm going to call it Good Humans Make Great Leaders. And the first half is about being a good human and what that takes. And the second half is how that translates into being a good leader. And I've been saying it out loud so that I'm held accountable for sitting down and writing. Um, but my nice goal thing. is to do it in, <laughs> in my voice, just how I talk. You know, a lot of like stupid little side notes and stories and whatever I want it to be fun to read, but I want it to have the same voice that that we all use when we're leading people. You know, you sit down and you talk to somebody on the human level. You're like, hey, bro, that was not cool, man. Why'd you do that? You know, and now you piss this person off and whatever. So, yeah, just doing that. Um, coaching. I love coaching. I've got uh, a few C-suite folks that are really fun because – I mean, the organization I left had 45,000 people. And, you know, I was working for a three-star general, sitting in meetings I probably had no business sitting in with, you know, heads of state of our country and other countries and all this stuff. So I don't I don't care if you're a CEO for company X. It's, And I think that's why people are drawn to me as a coach, because I'm very candid and not intimidated by your position. And I work specifically with people that want to grow. Either they're good leaders and they want to be great leaders or they're not good leaders, but they're good humans and they want to be great leaders. A lot of the stuff that I do is centered around self-awareness and how knowing yourself is going to make you a better leader. Um, I used to always say I was kind of a hippie with a gun anyway, you know, and Roger and I would have a lot of great talks. Uh, I can always hear his voice, you know, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, so uh, just a lot of that type of stuff trying to do my best to help make people treat each other better and then lead better. Yeah. Well, you're going to have to let us know when that book comes out. Cause we'll definitely have you on and promote the hell out of that go. book because that is something that all of us can relate to. Like just treat people good, treat people well, treat people how they want to be treated. Yeah, you know, and, I mean, just be a good the, human the moments that I'm lucky enough to be remembered. I want it not to be like for the position I held or what I did, but for the person that I was. And that's what people remember. Okay. So yep. the, I, the teams that have to get down there and then these are, you know, for the people listening, I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't t- try to steal some of your time. I assume you get paid for your time, but uh, you came on here for free and now I'm just going to exploit that. So from, from your optic now with all of your experience, right? One of the big questions we get when people get together down there is they have no idea, you know, we say we want to see teamwork. 
when we get there. It's one of the attributes that we assess for at assessment selection. We want to see teamwork and we want to see you be a leader at, at your level. And the answer we always get is, I don't know how to be a team player at this level. It's an individual event, really. And then the number two is, well, how can I be a leader if I'm not the one that's actually leading the thing? What advice would you give in, in that teamwork? Because teamwork and leadership play off of one another, just like that ninja star you were talking about. Sometimes, you know, one of those points is going to be the end of it. But sometimes, you know, you're just the, the rotating end of it. So, you know, kind of given that weird scenario, bringing people in right off the street, you know, throwing them into this crucible sort of event, what, what kind of advice do you have for those people? Self-awareness is where it starts and understanding what you bring to the mix. And I always use the analogy like you are a weather system. So understanding what your weather system brings, you know, and from a leadership perspective, if you're lightning and thunder, people are going to run and hide from you because it's raining, right? Or you're going to, you're going to drown everything out. But really that self-awareness piece and that's going to help you tamp down your ego. I was talking to a young Marine one time at the, dry cleaning thing. And I was with my Sergeant Major battle buddy. And he started, of course, talking to the young, I think he was a Sergeant and just like Sergeant Sergeants Major do, right. They're like, Hey, Hey Marine, what are you doing? You know, how are, how are you doing today? And, and this young guy's like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to ANS to Marsoc, right. To, to take ANS. And he's like, Oh, you should talk to master chief. He just came from there. Right. And so this guy immediately rolls into telling me, how fast he can swim, how, you know, what a great runner he is. It's, it's, it was me, me, me. And I don't know if you all, I just became aware of this term the other day on the Google. I found it. It's called the ninth letter leader. The ninth letter in the alphabet is I. Uh -uh. So it's I, me and mine. And those pronouns project individualism, selfishness, ownership, right? And nobody likes, I argue that there's a positive side to I. And it's the I, like, I know myself, what my core values are, what I stand for, all of that, right? So this young sergeant was telling me all the physical attributes that he thought he needed to get through ANS. And I let him go on for a little while, and I said, all right, brother, that's, that's awesome. I said, but what are you bringing to the team? And he was really caught on his heels. And I said, everybody who's there can run far and swim fast and do lots of push-ups and pull-ups. That's why they're there. What are you bringing to the team? What are you able to like put yourself down? And I don't mean down, I mean step down and take a support role when somebody else is better at something than you. And then how are you going to shift gears into the leadership role when you're the one that's better at something? That's what people are looking for in these assessment and selection or just in the world in general is for me to say, hey, I'm better at swimming than you are. And I know you're struggling, so let's go to the pool on the weekend and I'll help you with your stroke so you can get better. Or let me carry a little extra weight because I'm bigger than you are and we all have to get through this together. It's that, that's the piece. It's the human, again, it's the human element. It's not the pounding on your chest, like who's, who's winning the race. And I know from personal experience, and this is what I told them, I said, they're going to be watching how you interact as a leader and a team member, which are symbiotic or synonymous or what, you know, a good leader is a great follower and a great follower is a good leader. And you've got to constantly be shifting gears into which role you need to be playing at that, at that time. In an environment where there's a bunch of alphas, male and female, right? Everybody's bidding for that, like to be the best. The best is really the one who knows when and where they need to support others because a, they're not as good at it or B they're better at it. And, it's time for me to provide that support. Uh, I don't know that there's a better way to close yeah, that out. Than I really don't. Include home run. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I got nothing. I got nothing to add because I couldn't agree. I, I really couldn't agree more. Um, and that's, that's actually the way I think about it. And I know Aaron thinks the same way and as well as Trent. So, I mean, trying to impart that on, on folks that are coming in, because again, we get the same kind of questions and it's like, okay, well, how do you define that? How do you articulate that and, and put that into practice? And it's, it's tough. So, um, no, that's great. Uh, Jody, appreciate you coming on. Um, like you've got an incredible career and impacted 
I mean, you said your last command was 45,000 people. So I can only imagine through a, a career of 29 years, how many people that you have influenced and lives you have changed and impacted. So thanks for everything that you've done while you're in the Navy. And thanks for everything that you're doing now, even though it's uh, a whole bunch of surfing, but at least you're, you're spending more time with your girls and, yeah. and your family. So uh, appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll definitely once ever once that book comes out. And now you've said it, got there now you've got to do it. This is the first go. time I've said it on air. We'll have you back on the, to promote it. Oh. Well, <laughs> nice. you know, now you're you're able to get. I mean, it's it's one of the things we we've told folks that are coming in, yeah. like, hey, tell everybody that you're going yep. to go be a PJ or controller or whatever it's going to be. Tell everybody, and then you know, if you're on social media, post on social media about it because. You're going to get, mm-hmm. you're going to get asked about it and you can't come back and go, oh, well, actually, uh, I quit. Or usually the other excuses or other yep. excuses. <laughs> but no, um, definitely, uh, really enjoy the conversation. Uh, always, always enjoy these kind of conversations. So, uh, for everybody that's out there, don't forget to like and subscribe and then leave us a comment. We're, we're really close to a thousand reviews. So, uh, like to get there here in the next day or two. That'd be amazing. So, uh, everybody out there, that'd be cool. What's that? Just, it's, it's a review. You leave a review for every restaurant. I mean, that'd be cool. Maybe for a podcast that actually does help. Maybe it's our podcast. Maybe it's five stars. Maybe talk about how great we are. You know, up to you. Well, and I appreciate you guys having me on, man. It's been awesome. All right. Jody. No, absolutely. Thanks so much for coming. All right, everybody. Light up. All right.